Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome. My name is Blake Dean, and I'm here with my co-host, Aaron Monez, and you're listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. And today, we are excited and honored to host author and professor Dr. Lisa Ray Beal. The Reverend Dr. Lisa Ray Beal is the professor of Old Testament at Providence Theological Seminary, where she has taught since 2004. She is also a priest in the Diocese of Rupert's Land in the Anglican Church of Canada, serving as an honorary assistant in a local parish. Dr. Ray Beal completed a B.T.H. at Northwest Bible College and an MDiv at Taylor Seminary, both in Edmonton, before completing her Ph.D. at the Toronto School of Theology at Wycliffe College. Dr. Ray's B- Ray Beal's work focuses in Joshua and Kings, Jeremiah and the Psalter, exploring their literary, historical, and theological dimensions. She reaches the old she teaches the Old Testament as a witness to God's character and as preparatory for Christ. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Ray Beal. Thank you. It's good to uh, be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So if you've ever listened to Aaron and I do a podcast, you know that we begin with a segment called Watch, Read, or Listen, where we ramble for a very short amount of time about what we're watching, reading, or listening to. So Aaron Monez. Okay. Um, I have been staying away from the Great British Baking Show because I loved it. And then realized that I would walk around my house and be like, why are there not baked goods just ready and available for me at all times? I didn't actually want to cook, like bake them myself necessarily, but I began seeing my like realities alter and my expectations go a little wonky. But after a long hiatus, I'm back in and I'm trying to get caught up. So I'm a, I'm a few seasons behind the one that's that's been airing currently, but I am watching a lot of the great British baking show. I stopped watching it out of my loyalty to Mary Berry. Oh yeah, see that is that is that goes that goes way back. The the politics of these things just yeah. it just ruins shows like yeah, this. Really you never know. <laughs> okay, Blake, what are you watching, reading, or listening so, to? So on a very different note, I had a day to myself yesterday. So I left, and I'm really into long form journalism these days because I think it's a interesting discipline in interesting. our like age of tweet size consumption to sit mm. down and actually read an article about what's going on in the world. I see what you did there. So I went to um, Barnes and Noble because I don't want to. Unfortunately, I'm not in a place to pay for all the magazines I would like to read. So I just went to Barnes and Noble and sat at a table and read like the New York Review of Books and oh, the Atlantic. And it how was, was that? It was very fun. I loved it. Excellent. Dr. Ray Beal, what are you watching, reading, or listening to? Well, I I'd actually probably pick read. Uh, I've recently finished reading um, the Historians by Ekbach. Now she's mm. she's living currently in Canada, but she I think was born and raised in Sweden, and it's set in Sweden in the Second World War. It's kind of a mystery. It's a little it's quite noir, so which you might yeah. expect from a book from Sweden. Uh, but what was fascinating <laughs> about it is that it talks about race relations and a lot mm. of the prejudice against the Sami people in yeah. um, Sweden. So it was uh, quite a good read. It has a huge cast of characters, so I had to have a map of all the characters just to figure out what was going on. But 
Very sounds good. like the Russian novels. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say that. Not, sounds not like Dostoevsky. Long, though, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, Lisa, we are so excited to have you. And one of the reasons is because you are an Old Testament scholar, and we are so excited uh, to, to talk to you about that. And But before we get into the breadth of your work, um, I want to start with a preliminary question that just sort of sets the tone for why the Old Testament is important to study, because I feel like so many of our listeners, especially women who are on a journey with their own study of scripture and gender theology, for them, there's usually two big triggers. One is Paul in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. and then the other is how women are portrayed Mm -hmm. in the Old Testament, particularly uh, caricatures of Eve and and, uh, just other passages, classic passages that women uh, feel like they need to armor up and and, and get defensive about before going in um, because of the way it it portrays women. And yet... um, we we know that along that journey, a lot of these things become redeemed, uh, Paul in the New Testament. But for your um, for your category of the Old Testament, can you t- say for our listeners, give them sort of an encouraging start as to why the Old Testament is something that they shouldn't set aside, that they shouldn't ignore, and that is is important uh, for both men and women to mm. to study? Yeah. Well, certainly, uh, I, I started in pastoral ministry and loved to preach from the Old Testament and did adult Sunday school classes as well. And one of the things I was drawn myself to the Old Testament and the, the great stories of it and the very intimate care of God alongside those great stories of God working mm. in history and across time. And one of the things I realized very quickly in that pastoral context was people responded to the Old Testament. Mm. They, they connected with the stories And it also opened up for them a new way to think about their New Testament. And as I've been teaching and preaching in the Old Testament for many years, I've become increasingly convinced that for us to understand our New Testament faith, we really can't do that Mm. well or fully without the Old Testament. It it tells us what our situation is. It tells us um, who God is. It tells us why Jesus came. Uh, So much of what we know about Jesus, we know because of who God is revealed to be in the Old Testament. Oh, yes. Very well said. Thank you. And and, and thank you for giving us a little bit about why you were drawn to the Old Testament and and why that keeps keeps giving life to Mm -hmm. you. We appreciate that. Yeah, I... um kind of bouncing off of that, I would love to talk about some particular complexities that you explore in your work. Um, some The intersection of the Old Testament narrative and the experiences of women, um, and you can help us kind of see um, maybe anew. Um, so you have a forthcoming commentary on the book of Jeremiah. I do. As well as an article coming out, which I am fascinated by and love the name of, um, Call for the Morning Women, Women's Songs of Lament in Jeremiah. So Excellent. I'd, I'd love to hear a bit of what your work on Jeremiah entails as a whole, but particularly as it surrounds women's songs of lament. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you mind sharing a bit about what you explore in that commentary and, if relevant, how Jeremiah's picture of women singing songs of lament expands our understanding of women in the Old Testament? Sure. Yeah, the, the, the project, it's in the Baker Old Testament commentary series, and it's, uh, I have probably another couple years before I'll actually submit the manuscript, so it won't be out for a while. Um, and the, the series follows a, a sort of a, it has a, a, a pattern and a, an approach that they like you to work within. Um, and of course, it plays out differently in every book. So in the book of Jeremiah, I am uh, attentive to a lot of the pathos of the book mm. of Jeremiah, 
And um, I think one of the challenging issues for the book of Jeremiah for women and for many men is that um, uh, stubborn Israel is often figured as mm. um, a, 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 a prostitute woman or an adulterous mm. woman. And yeah. it's, it's a very uh, troubling and sometimes quite a graphic portrayal. And so I often think that women come or people come to the book of Jeremiah with a sense that it's down on women. Mm. And I, I think one of the reasons why that um, image is picked for stubborn Israel is that it was already there for Jeremiah to use. It begins in the book of Hosea. So I think mm. he was familiar with the image. It plays into a, an ancient Near Eastern context in which uh, cities, so the city of Jerusalem, and peoples were sometimes imaged as women. And I think he uses it because it is, if he's speaking to primarily a male audience, I, I think, uh, it's a way for him to, to catch them up short because he's figuring this male audience, uh, the leaders of the country, as women. And I think it's one way that the prophet uh, is trying to shake them, to arrest them, to, to listen to what God is saying. Mm. In that context, I in Jeremiah chapter 9, there's a passage where God uh, calls through Jeremiah, calls for these mourning women to come and give lament over uh, the, the lost children uh, and the devastation of the city and the exile. So it is speaking um, probably to a sort of a professional guild of women who were skilled mm -hmm and were often uh, present in communal situations of lament, mm. leading the people in lament. And what I find wonderful about looking at the women's lament in this passage is that they seem to be echoing a lament that God himself gives in chapter 9, verse 10, and mm. also in the very last part of chapter 8, there's a passage where we're not quite sure if it's Jeremiah who's lamenting or whether it's God who's lamenting or what I would say, it is Jeremiah voicing as a prophet mm. an emotion that is actually an emotion that is felt by and shared by God that is uh, mm. coming prophetically through his prophet. If then the women in Jeremiah chapter 9 are being called to lament and there's uh, some linguistic uh, connections between that passage about the women and the lament of God in chapter 9, verse 10, and mm. the very last part of chapter 8, those linguistic connections, I think, suggest that God understands and is in their lament because he also feels the very same thing. Mm. And that as the women are lamenting, they're giving a dirge, they're weeping, their eyes are flowing with tears— it's in some respect as if they are prophetically depicting God before the people. Mm. Just as when Jeremiah voices his lament at the end of chapter 8, which I think is also expressing the lament, the deep pain of God over his people, that's what we see these mourning women mm. doing in uh, chapter 9, verses 17 through 22. I, I find that a very helpful idea that this group of women are called upon to do something that I think is quite prophetic, to mm -hmm. say to a people who are devastated, 
this is the uh, emotion of lament, and it's an emotion that God himself is, is mm. feeling and sharing and expressing. Yeah. And so I think it's an important passage. It hasn't had a lot of attention given to it. There has been some writing done on it, but mm. uh, I, I've enjoyed writing this paper. I'll be presenting it next week at ETS. I've enjoyed just thinking of another lens in which women are depictive of who God is, uh, mm. of the heart of God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's wonderful and and so so beautifully uh, shared. I I believe that for me, I'm looking forward to to being able to get a hold of of your your research in this paper because both both the discussion of women imaging God in the Old Testament, but also um, the the subject of lament yeah. mm-hmm. is both very important, um, yes, uh, topics that we need more on, that we need to be be thinking about and studying more deeply. The, the Old Testament really gives us a lot of good material. Um, I know for my work with college students, the introducing lament um, as a Christian practice, as a discipline, is something that we pull from our ancient traditions has been new and I don't know if refreshing is the right word, but, but it, yes, it gives them an outlet um, and it in something that that they can tie back to their faith that is not extra to it, but but embedded in it. So um, so yeah, just wanted to thank you for that. Um, so I've got a, I've got a little bit of a of a different kind of question and and forgive me because I, I we didn't prep you for this one, but <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> as you were as you were speaking, I was thinking about you've you've done um you've done a lot of research in the Joshua through Kings mm-hmm. um part of scripture and I know for me we're we're seeing a lot of great scholarship coming out now about the book of Ruth in particular um just revisiting Ruth and Naomi and from your area of expertise in your own studies I was wondering if you could give something to our listeners about what you think we often get wrong or misrepresent in that particular book mm-hmm. just 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 something from your own studies that would be worth uh, you know knowing as we as we rediscover it yeah it's a great book and every other year with my advanced level Hebrew class we work on the book of Ruth so it's a book that I've really grown to love. Um, I think one of the main things we often get wrong about the Book of Ruth is that we think it's actually sort of a Harlequin romance story of the Old Testament, <laughs> you know, the love story of Ruth and Boaz. And, and certainly that is there. But it's really, in some respects, it's Naomi's story. It's about the reclamation mm. of a family line for Naomi, which Ruth and yeah. Boaz obviously are participatory in, and Ruth does so in a very self, uh, unselfish way, in a self-giving way. Mm-hmm. And Boaz um, attends to their uh, desperate need in a way that um, either very inventively applies the law or goes above and beyond what the law requires. Mm-hmm. And so as the kinsman redeemer, uh, we see uh, him and Ruth in very um, grace-filled ways, uh, providing for the loss that Naomi has experienced in the loss of her husband and her sons and then descendants after that. What I think is fabulous as well about the book of Ruth is that Ruth is an outsider. She Mm -hmm. is from the land of Moab. When, When you look at the book repeatedly, they're telling us that she's a Moabite as if we didn't get it the first, second, or third time. <laughs> and I think it does so because it really wants to hold up for us the fact that this woman 
is not part of Israel. And yet God uh, seems to have somehow called her, maybe mm. through the witness of her mother-in-law, maybe through the witness of her dead father. But something captures her heart about this mm. God of Naomi. And so she says, your God will be my God, your people, my people. Where you go, I'll go, and there I'll be buried. And it's, again, this idea of a woman who risks all, who leaves home and father's house and mother's house and comes to some place utterly unknown because something's tugging at her heart, her relationship with Naomi, mm. this God that somehow she's come to know. And for this woman and for her and Boaz to become part of the family line of Jesus. So, of course, mm. uh, Ruth is one that is named in the genealogy in Matthew. I think is such a reminder to us that God really is a God who includes everyone and that he is attentive to the heart that is open, even from uh, a Moabite woman. And of course, Israel's history mm. with the Moabite women is uh, not very salutary, so it is yeah, even uh, uh, more uh, striking that uh, mm. she comes into the people of God. Registration is now open for CBE's 2022 International Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Join us in person August 5th through 7th as we explore the fullness of Galatians 3.28 beside leaders from around the world. Be a part of the conversation on women, race, and ethnicity. Register now before April 30th to receive the early bird pricing of $249. Visit CBE's website to register and see information on the event schedule, lodging, speakers, and sponsorship opportunities. We hope to see you there this August as we explore the fullness of Galatians 3.28. I love that. I Additionally, I apologize. I have another question we didn't prep you for. But as you were speaking on um, Jeremiah, I, it strikes me that oftentimes, especially coming from gender theology and wanting to read um, and uphold the voices of women, we also um, can have a tendency to be maybe a bit, um, what's the fabulous uh, phrase from C.S. Lewis? We can have the chronological snobbery. That's it, yeah. Um, and look back on the past um, as um, less progressed as we are. Um, so I wonder if you could speak as an Old Testament scholar really briefly for our listeners about how we attend the text and listen to the to the voice, the culture, and the context of the text, mm -hmm. while not having to release um, maybe the liberative frameworks that we get from um, the New Testament or um, maybe some other commitments as well. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? I don't. It, I don't think I asked that clearly. No, I, I think it does, and I, I think it calls us to read a text on its own, uh, yeah. in its own context, on its own merits, so to speak. So not to ask the text to be a modern text, to allow the mm. text to be an ancient text. As an ancient text, and as an ancient text that arises out of a patriarchal culture, it is probably no surprise that, um, especially in the block of literature that I work with, so Joshua through Kings and Jeremiah, that uh, prophets, priests, and kings are sort of the big players. Well, there were no mm -hmm. women kings. There were no women priests. There were, are some women prophets. But the mm -hmm. major characters are not yeah. surprising in that patriarchal context, men. Mm -hmm. 
But what is also surprising in that patriarchal context is that there are myriad women who come into the story, sometimes as unnamed characters. So I think of the little serving girl uh, to Naaman's wife, who changes a course of history because she says, oh, I know there's a prophet in Israel that could help your husband. Um, there are the, the wise woman of Tekoa who confronts David, um, Deborah, the prophetess mm. and judge, Abigail, who actually yeah. in, uh, second, uh, in Samuel, she sort of is acting, functioning in the narrative in the place of the missing prophet Samuel. Uh, Lady mm. Wisdom in Proverbs, Bathsheba, Hannah, uh, Panina, uh, the matriarchs. Uh, so there's women all over the place and I find that absolutely wonderful in a text mm. that is so patriarchally uh, prescribed. I, I think mm. it's saying God is able, even through that patriarchal context, to say, I am the God of all people, and men and women figure in his story mm. of who he is and what he's doing with people. Mm. Even God Thank himself you. is figured as a woman. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, when you and I were um, emailing back and forth about setting up this conversation, you you um, drew my attention to the importance and um, existence of the five daughters of, I do not know how to say this word. Zalafahad. Zalafahad. I wish I wouldn't have already named my dog um, in the book of Joshua. Uh, so could you give us a quick overview of who these women are and um, why they're important, why you drew our attention to them? Yeah. The the women, the five daughters of Zelophehad are Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, Terza. And I didn't know that until I, I did a Joshua commentary, and they actually figure now in the dedication in the commentary. They show up in oh, Joshua gosh. 17, but they have actually appeared twice already in the book of Numbers. So in Numbers 26, 27, uh, their father has died, and... Um, Moses is talking about distributing the land. They've just done the census. And these mm. daughters come and say, look, our father has died. He was a good guy. Um, we want to receive uh, the portion of land that would have gone to him. That's very striking because in that culture, uh, land passed patrilineally, so through the father's mm -hmm. line. And these right. women stand up and say, hey, we want a piece of the land. Lest our father's name be lost out of Israel. Um, God, through Moses, agrees with that in chapter 27. And then we have a whole bunch of material in Numbers uh, talking about sort of final stuff as they're going into the land. And then they actually appear again right at the end of Numbers in chapter mm. 36, where there's some adjustments, adjustments made to that. Um, doesn't change the fact that they're going to get land, but they sort of adjust it. So for uh, a number of different reasons. And then they go into the land and in the book of Joshua in chapter 17, where the land is being divvied up, these women show up again and they say, hey, remember what <laughs> Moses said? Remember how God told us we can have land? We want you to, we're, we're, we're speaking up so you'll be faithful to what God has promised. Mm. And mm. they, um, uh, it's affirmed again that the land will be theirs. And what so uh, struck me and blessed my heart through that is that these women stand alongside someone like Caleb and alongside someone like Joshua who are held mm. up as examples of faith, people who claimed wow. 
what God has promised regarding the land. And I think they're a model then for people yeah. to, to press in and, and to, to claim the promises that God has made to them. And yeah. I think for women that uh, shows up in many ways. Um, one of the ways I, I teach in a seminary where women are called to pastoral ministry and they have to deal with churches that say, no, 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 you can't do that. Um, and we will tell you what roles you can have. And they wrestle with, has God called me? And should they conclude that, yes, God has indeed called me? I think these five women really are a reminder to them to, to stand up and, and graciously, um, but firmly, uh, claim what God has promised. And that's what I see these five women, mm. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, Terza doing. They stood up and they said, this is what God has promised. We're claiming it. Please, mm. to the community, please uh, don't hinder this. Mm. It's a wonderful Amen. story of faith. Mm. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, I am learning so much. Uh, we are like... <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> they persisted. That's nevertheless. Um, nevertheless. Well, and yeah. Yes. And um, Lisa, I'm, I'm very excited about adding your commentaries yeah. to my collection and encouraging our listeners to, to recognize your work and those of other women who are contributing um, these, these resources, especially to those of us who are studying the scriptures in order to exegete them for our communities and mm-hmm. in, in our, in our, um, our churches. And so um, I, I just want to finish by allowing you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, the projects you have coming up. You've already mentioned, uh, we've talked a little bit about some of the articles that uh, you've been writing, but is is there a way that we can hear more about anything that you're working on or how our listeners can support and follow you if you have uh, social media or other mm-hmm. things that we can we can be uh, connecting with or a website of that sort? This is kind of your, your moment, just kind of <laughs> shout out and uh, <laughs> let us know how we can support you. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful, even the offer. Um, I'm not a big social media person. I just find the the time it takes, but I do have a Facebook uh, page. But um, I I think that my Joshua commentary, which came out just a few years back, two or three years ago, I think it's um, in a series that is really aimed to help people, lay people and pastors, Mm. read the grand story and how the book of Joshua fits into it. So it starts within the narrative context, the context of the ancient world, but it says, how does this text prepare for and speak of Christ? So I I think that Joshua commentary in the Story of God series by Zondervan is great. Uh, I'm currently um, co-editing with Danny Carroll a new commentary series put out by Cascade called the Bible in God's Mm. World series. Ecclesiastes by John Golden Gay is about to be released. Uh, We have what's so exciting about this series is we have um, world-class scholars uh, that are uh, from around the world. We've really intentionally sought out scholars who are both junior and senior scholars, um, very different cultural contexts, uh, very different uh, geographical contexts. And the series uh, is doing exegetical work, but it's asking questions of justice. Uh, it's asking mm. questions of the kingdom of God. So that's going to be quite exciting because the contributors are coming from so very many different contexts, men and women around the globe. So uh, that's one to look for. I'll do the brief Ruth 
contribution for that series. So my Jeremiah commentary will be out in uh, a few years. But I have uh, some articles that are coming out through the Center for the Study of Bible and Violence. Uh, Helen Painter over in Bristol uh, heads that up. And I have a couple of uh, articles on the book of Jeremiah and one on uh, lamentation. So we were talking earlier about lamentation and Mm -hmm. how... um, Uh, lament is so necessary for traumatized people to tell their story, to begin to touch on it, often very metaphorically because it's such a painful thing. And through that process, uh, working towards uh, recovery and hope again. And then another one on Nebuchadnezzar is uh, using a bit of monster theory, which was really fun to do. (laughs) So (laughs) I can't wait. This is a new term. I am... Uh, yes, I don't even know amazing. what monster theory is, but I'm very But excited. I love it. I love it already. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, but as we wrap up, and I think Aaron has already touched on this, but I want to say it even more explicitly to our listeners, which is um, for, a, for a long time, um, there have been really brilliant men who have written commentaries, but brilliant women have not been um, represented in the in the scope for, for a while. And so anytime that we can introduce new scholars doing good and faithful work. And my favorite part of your whole bio is um, doing work in the old Testament because it points us back to Christ. And I think um, I, I share that longing for the work that we do. I share that longing for the work that you do um, and for the work of the church Catholic. So thank you so much and make sure that listeners, pastors, preachers, if you're going to be, preaching on any of the uh, books or topics that we've been um, talking about today. Make sure to explore Dr. Ray Beal's um, articles and most um, especially her current commentary on Joshua that is out and keep your eye out for all of the things that she has mentioned. We'll have those linked in the show notes. And thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear weekly from our co-hosts and other themes as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of men and women. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. You should also go to their website at www.cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to their blog, magazine, and academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences and events. And you should go visit their bookstore where you can find a ton of talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. We would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host Aaron Monez, where mutuality matters. Thanks so much for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.